Well, if you will, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter, chapter 3. We will actually finish this uh, chapter today, and moving forward, we will go into chapter 4 next week. But this passage is a short passage, but it has also been one of those passages in church history that has brought up many different interpretations many different understandings of what Peter is writing here. I think some of the interpretations are a little far-fetched. I think some are right on target, and that's perhaps where we will try to land today. Just try to see where God is leading here through the words of his servant Peter. But if you will stand, let's let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 3 Verses 21 and 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Dear God Almighty, we do stop at this moment as we hear the words of your servant Peter to us this morning. As we hear these words, God, we hear you speak. And for this, God, I pray that you would teach us what it is that you are saying here. We firmly believe that the meaning of Scripture belongs to the one who wrote it. And dear God, it is through your Holy Spirit that these words come to us through your servant Peter. So teach us, dear God, what it is that Peter is saying, but more importantly, God, what Peter is saying because you say it. What does this mean that baptism now saves us? Teach us what is incorrect, teach us what is correct, and point us to the truth, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. This week has been a week where we have been reminded of the power of water. Amen. Um, I know that you guys have had some, the river rose up at your place down on the Capitola River, and you lost a lamb this week. Um, we've had some water down here in the basement. Did anybody else have any water issues at their house too? Yeah. Water can do a lot of damage. Um, the high winds and the rain, I mean, they can take off roofs. I think, Joanne, did I hear that something happened to your roof this week? You got some issues with your roof. When weather happens, things can be destroyed. It's a dangerous business to be dealing with water. <laughs> if, uh, if you have done any kind of construction work, if you've tried to build any kind of houses, you know that one of the number one things you've got to deal with is where does the water go? Not, not the water from the street to your house for a shower, but where does the water go when it comes through your property? Because when the water flows, the water is going to do what it wants to do, and the water along the way will take up whatever is in its path and wash it away. Water is a wonderful thing. It is necessary for life. What is it, 70% of our body is water? Is that right? The world is covered with water. We need it. It is foundational to our existence as human beings. But with that as well, water is a dangerous killer. 
It can cause a lot of damage. This imagery of water and baptism is something that God has uh, used for a reason. And I think our understanding here of this ordinance of baptism in the church with water requires a little bit of digging here. Now, why is it that Peter is bringing up this image of baptism? Speaking about baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you. Let's understand the context leading up to this. We spoke about this a little bit last week and the week before. The verses prior to verse 21 speak about the days of Noah. Think about this image of Noah. And and this is one of the reasons that I I used the imagery when I talked about uh, Noah's flood this week. A little bit of tongue in cheek. But it is important for us to remember, I mean, floodwaters carry historical precedence. You think about how often floodwaters come. We talk about 500-year floods. We talk about 1,000-year floods. And when we talk about those kind of floods, we're talking about devastation in its wake. The greatest flood that we know of in Scripture, there has been never been a flood like it, was in the days of Noah when God wiped out all living things on the earth, save eight people and numerous animals that we do not know the exact number, but we can get a figure two by two. What does this mean? Why is Peter bringing up this imagery of the days of Noah? Well, first of all, we know that when Noah was alive, We read this in Genesis chapter 6. He was called by God to preach a gospel message of repentance. That that destruction was coming. And in that preaching of the message, Noah was commanded by God to construct a thing that had never been seen before. It was this ark, a structure that was intended to save those whom God deemed savable. Because God said the world had become so disobedient, had become so full of sin, that there was no hope for his creation. He was going to wipe it out and start over. But in this story of Noah, we know this, that God in his mercy holds out a remnant of obedient people as a sign to the rest of humanity to follow That God, even in his just wrath, will always provide an opportunity for salvation. The Noah story is a wonderful story to teach our children. Isn't it a great story, kids? Noah's ark and the animals coming two by two. And they survived on that ark those many, many months until they finally found dry land. And then they started over. And God sent a promise. In the rainbow, right? I will never destroy the earth again. But I am providing a way of salvation for you. That's the message of Noah and the flood. Now, why is Peter bringing this up in verse 20? It's because he's writing to a church that is spread throughout the Roman Empire in a state of persecution and suffering. Now, Noah and his family here clearly are saved by God in this structure called the ark, in a torrent of water and and sinfulness and debauchery and disobedience. They were building this ark and living at a time when no human being on the earth obeyed God. Can you imagine what Noah's neighbors said to him? 
Can you imagine the persecution that Noah and his family suffered those many decades that they took to build this thing called the ark? Actually, a little over a century, I believe, if you really add it up. It took a long time. Can you imagine preaching a message for nearly a 100 years or more and no one believes you and your life is in danger, but you still have to build this ark that God said build? Can you imagine what the Christians that Peter is writing to feel when they are living in new places surrounded by enemies of God who do not love God and disobey God and actually come against the church? You see the connection here? Peter is writing to a church that is seeing a lot of devastation, a lot of disobedience around them. And he's and Peter is reminding the church in verse 20 of chapter 3, just like Noah was redeemed in the ark in a time of disobedience, you as the church, you are in a place of safety in the arms of Christ. Being surrounded by people who hate God. And likewise hate you. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes, folks, whenever you are living the Christian life, you are following and obeying God's word, but those around you are coming against you and they ridicule you and tell you how wrong you are and how foolish you are? Does it, does that not feel like a storm and a flood that has come against you? I would argue that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you do not have those times of Flood and torment around you, the spiritual torment and, and things swirling around. I, I wonder how boldly are we living for the name of Jesus? Now, this is not giving, I'm not telling you to go out and get yourself in trouble. Okay. Peter's actually going to talk about that in chapter four as well. He calls, he says that people who do evil, uh, if, if they are evildoers and meddlers or busybodies, they cause their own trouble. We'll get to that here in a couple of weeks. This is not a call for the Christian to go out and stir up the stir up the waters. The waters are going to be stirred up enough. Amen. So here Peter is writing to this church and reminding them that just like in the days of Noah, where God protected the faithful, He's going to protect you. And this is, leads up to verse twenty-one. Now He says, "Baptism, which corresponds to this." What does this mean? This is talking about Noah and the flood. So he's making a connection here in verse 21 between baptism and Noah's flood. You see what we're doing here? The waters of Noah's flood wiped out all of disobedient creation. But on those waters was this safety that God allowed to happen in this thing called the ark. And Peter here in verse 21 is now making a connection. He's now going to help us understand what exactly God was doing with Noah through the through what is happening through the church in baptism into Jesus Christ. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now we come into a controversy. Peter here is writing about a connection and imagery of baptism and Noah's floodwaters, showing a bigger picture here of salvation in Jesus Christ in the midst of turmoil. But what, I mean, these, these words here, verse 21, baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you. This has been so misunderstood over the centuries. More, more recently in our context, 
the churches of Christ, our brothers and sisters in what are called the churches of Christ, who follow after what began as the Campbellite movement, the Stone Campbell movements. Uh, this was a movement that came in the United States uh, church um, around early to mid-1800s. There was a revival amongst the Baptist churches of that time in the United States, primarily in Kentucky, some down here into Tennessee, but they were called the Campbellites, which eventually became the churches of Christ that we know today. They argued for what was called baptismal regeneration, and they still do. Now, this is not a new argument, and I'll, I'll open that up here in just a second. But this understanding of baptismal regeneration centers on this verse here in 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So the interpretation of this verse means that baptism is required for salvation. That is the interpretation. I'm going to argue that is not what this text says. Because if baptism is necessary for salvation, then we have now added to the blood of Christ that is the only hope for our salvation. So what does this mean? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. We have two different understandings. Because the thing about it, when we are forgiven of our sin, what is happening? God is pouring out onto us his mercy. He, in, in his mercy, he is redeeming us from horrible circumstances that we are in because of sin. We, we are born into this world under the curse of Adam, carrying that sin nature. And we live this life struggling to obey or not obey, to maybe, maybe, hopefully God will love me. Maybe if I do enough, he'll, I'll earn his favor. We struggle with that, and the gospel is very clear. There is not a single thing that we can do ourselves to redeem us. So why is it here that baptism is understood in this passage as something that is necessary for salvation or is a process of salvation? See, when God is forgiving us, there's two different ways to understand forgiveness. Number one, there's what we call actual forgiveness. Actual forgiveness comes from Christ or comes through Christ's blood at the moment of our repentance and confession to God that we are in desperate need of saving. Now, God has already completed all that is necessary for salvation. That salvation is there for all who receive it in faith. Now, what does that mean by faith? Faith means that we trust that God has done all that is necessary. There is absolutely nothing that I can do to save myself. So, dear God, I trust you that you are doing this and that you have done this. And I trust you that I am now forgiven through the blood of Christ. That's actual forgiveness. Now, the, the Stone Campbellite people, the churches of Christ, now add a second understanding of forgiveness that I don't know is necessarily correct. They say, in addition to actual forgiveness, there is what is called formal forgiveness. This is their language. And the formal forgiveness is in the act of baptism. So they say there's a two-step process to forgiveness. Number one, we are actually forgiven at the point of confession through Christ's blood. But the, 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 the forgiveness is not finalized until we actually go through the act of baptism. That is their argument. Has anybody ever heard that before? Now, I, this is not a sermon bashing the churches of Christ. Please don't go out and say that Pastor Bryant hates the churches of Christ. Okay, 
I love my brothers and sisters in the churches of Christ. We have a lot that we can agree on biblically. We have a lot that we can agree on doctrinally. But this is one issue that we cannot agree. Because here's one of the reasons that I have uh, uh, that I think this is clearly wrong. Number one, because if there is a second step to forgiveness that depends on our actions, then we have now opened up the door to the possibility that Jesus is not completely all that we need. If Jesus is all that we need for salvation, then why are we why is it necessary for us to do something? Because if salvation depends upon us, we could save ourselves without the blood of Christ. You see where that goes? But see, the irony here from the uh, Campbellite movement here is that they they came out of the Baptist tradition of the United States of around the 1800, early to mid 1800s. And they were clearly not Catholic in their views, or at least they say they weren't. The irony of Campbell's view here, the irony of the Church of Christ's position is that it is exactly the same view of the Catholic Church on baptism. Now, a lot of people around this area in the churches of Christ will totally disagree with me on that. But listen to me carefully, because in the Catholic tradition, it is understood that baptism is something that is called ex opere operato, if you want to know the Latin, which literally translates by the work worked. So by the work of baptism, we are working out our salvation and obeying Christ. And now we're saved. That is the Catholic doctrine. That's their language. Ex operato, or ex opere operato. Out of the work, worked, we are saved. That's the same thing that the churches of Christ are saying that baptism is for. That by the work of baptism, we are working out our salvation. Now, the Protestant Reformation clearly woke up to the reality that this was not true. This is not biblical. Salvation is by faith alone. Faith that Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross is enough for salvation. And actually is the only way to salvation. It's the only path to forgiveness of our sin. There is no other way to be forgiven of our sin except through the blood of Jesus Christ. If we could somehow earn God's forgiveness, then that would have been an opportunity for it. There would have been multiple choices to salvation. Okay, uh, Baptist churches, if you want to baptize people and say they're saved, that's okay. Uh, Protestant people, if you are, are, I'm sorry, Presbyterian people, if you want to go and, and break bread every week at the Lord's table and that, that be your act of salvation, that could be okay. And you see, this, this is not, this would be total chaos and confusion. Jesus Christ and the blood that he's shed on the cross is biblically the only salvation that we can have. And in verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 3, we see even more of this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean here for the rest of this verse? This baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. Peter here is writing not as a removal of dirt from the body to make it very clear that when you are baptized into water, it is just as if you are removing dirt from the outside of your body. But he, if you notice here, he's got the negative. This baptism does not save you as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, what does this mean by an appeal to God for a good conscience? 
It's not the action of baptism that allows us to have a good conscience. Rather, it is a symbol here that we are being baptized into the spirit of Christ. And we are asking God to change our minds into the mind of Christ. When we are baptized, when we are saved, we are made new men and women in Christ. Yes. Those who understand salvation, you can, you can try to explain this to somebody who has, who does not know salvation and they'll never get it until they experience it. But there is something at the moment that you know that you are forgiven of your sin that you say, I am totally new. Right? And there is no explanation other than God did it. Amen. So, what is Peter saying here? That when we appeal to God, we are asking God, we're actually pledging to God, will you please give me a good conscience, dear God? I will obey you and I will serve you as a new creature in Christ. Dear God, will you forgive me and make me new? That's what pleading for a good conscience means. It's actually asking and begging God for for forgiveness so that I can be made new. It's asking God, will you complete this work in me? That's what it means to be made to asking God to appeal to God or to ask God for a good conscience. Literally, that's just another phrase for saying, dear God, forgive me and make me new the only way that you know how. Anyone who claims the name of Christ, but does not firmly understand that they have a new mindset, that they are new creatures in Christ, then they do not have this good conscience that Peter's talking about. If you do not have a change of mindset, if you do not have a change of outlook, then there has been no salvation whatsoever. Now, that does not mean that we, as Christians, don't have those periods of low times in Christ and high times in Christ, right? Even as Christians, we go into those low times where we have to look up and say, oh, God, forgive me again. Amen. (laughs) All right. But we have the mindset of Christ in the, as we are baptized into the spirit of Christ. Because what Peter's talking about here in verse 21, let's understand that what Peter's talking about is not that the waters of baptism are what saves you. But baptism, as implied here, is maybe implied as, a, as, as baptizing into a spiritual state. Yes, we do have the baptism of the water, and that's implied here and understood because he's making the connection with Noah. But the meaning of Peter's words here and the meaning that God wishes for us to see is that when we are baptized into something, the actual word baptize means to immerse into, to totally be overwhelmed with. Just like you jump into the deep end of the pool and there's nowhere else to go but down. Amen. I don't know about you, but I learned how to swim the hard way. I figured out I was too big for my britches, and I jumped into the 12-foot end of the pool when I was about nine years old and figured out real quick I didn't know how to swim. It didn't take me long to learn. Amen. How much? How many of us have been so immersed into the love and the mercy that God gives us through Jesus Christ that we are just overwhelmed and drowning in his love and his forgiveness and that salvation that he gives us. Can you picture that in your spirit? That's what Peter's talking 
the baptism into the Spirit of Christ, that baptism into the salvation that is only offered through the blood. We are immersed into the Spirit of good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says here. Now, what does this mean? In verse 21, when he says, baptism which corresponds to this, this word here, this idea of corresponding to, actually is a word that can be translated the antitype or representation. So when Peter says, when baptism corresponds to this, talking about Noah and his flood, he says baptism is an antitype or a symbol representing something. That's literally what that word is. So this is why we understand baptism biblically as a symbol of something greater. This is why the action of baptism is not salvation action. Baptism is a symbol that corresponds to a greater purpose, a greater truth of spiritual salvation in Jesus Christ. And so after this, he's connecting this to the, the Noah's Ark. Just as Noah was saved in the ark, that was a sign of salvation in Jesus Christ. Likewise, baptism is the same sign. It's just another way for us to point to something bigger. It's a representation of dying into Christ and being raised again in a new life as a new person. That's literally what this means. Now, how do we know this? Turn with me over to Romans chapter 6, and we'll close with this, okay? Romans chapter 6. We read part of this this morning in our uh, public reading of Scripture. But I want to unpack this because this is the same ideas from uh, the Apostle Paul as what Peter is saying. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, wait a minute. If baptism was literal, if baptism was a literal action, by these words in verse 3, baptism would mean that we are literally dying. How many people do you know that when they were baptized didn't come up out of the water? They were dead once they went down. Well, I've never seen that. You know, if that were to happen, that would be a tragedy. So literally, if we are baptized into Christ, and we're baptized into his death, that doesn't mean that we're literally going to die. So why do we understand baptism in this literal way? It's a symbol. It's a symbol that we are dying into Christ when we are immersed in this water. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see this? Baptism is an act, number one, of obedience because Jesus Christ commanded it that we are to baptize folks into the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. We are to preach the gospel, preach the good news of salvation, and then baptize them into Christ, his death and his resurrection. This is clearly a symbol because when we baptize people, they are they don't go down dead. This is literally showing us that in Christ we are dying to our sin and being made new and being raised again symbolically as new people. 
just as Jesus himself literally died and literally rose from the dead, at best, when we are baptized into Christ, we are into that same spirit of Christ. We are dead to our sin and alive again in Christ. Now, if that is the case, according to what Paul says and what Peter says, why is it then that as Christians, so many people who claim the name of Jesus Christ struggle to the point of being overwhelmed with sin? Doesn't mean that we're not going to ever have sin. Uh, doesn't mean that we're never going to avoid sin as a Christian. Why is it that people who name Jesus Christ live so forcefully and so publicly a sinful life as if Jesus wasn't even present? I would argue they were never saved. Can we say an amen? Because evidence of salvation is that someone's life is so radically changed, it's like they've been made so totally new, it's like they've been raised from the dead again. Whoever they were is gone, and whoever they are now is so radically new, everybody sees it, and no one can avoid it. So my argument to anyone who struggles in sin, and they have a doubt whether or not they are saved, number one, if you have been forgiven, and you are saved in Jesus Christ, Please take assurance that everything that you believe and you trust in is guaranteed. But if you don't have that assurance and you have that continual doubt, let's sit down and chat. Let's figure out, number one, what was your salvation experience? Was it genuine? Are you truly new? Because if you're not, then maybe you were told something that was incorrect. Maybe you were taught something that is not biblical. Maybe you're not saved at all. And that's the most dangerous place to be, to think that you've been forgiven and you have never, ever come close to God's forgiveness. Now, this is not a message of the free will doctrine. The free will Baptists, as much as I love those brothers and sisters in that tradition, the folks in the free will Baptist tradition say that you'll never know that you're saved and every week you better come and repent again just hoping, just in case God has not forgiven you, right? If we're people of the book and Sovereign Grace Baptist Church trusts that our salvation comes from a sovereign Lord who has given us his mercy and his love and his son, Jesus Christ, because he's the only sovereign power who could. And we can trust him. Amen. I like you. Thank you. Y'all can talk. Now, if you start responding, I'm going to start preaching in the hoop and we're going to get excited and we're going to keep going for like two hours. But I don't know if you want that. That's okay. Jesus Christ is the only means to our salvation. But these things that we participate in in the church, baptism, the Lord's Supper next week, these are all symbols that point to, these are antitypes. That's the word here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. They are antitypes, symbols that point to the truth of the gospel. That's what God has been doing throughout all of the Old Testament history, showing the world through the history of his nation Israel and through everything that they've been through. They All of that was pointing to the salvation in Jesus And everything we do in the church now as an ordinance, baptism, Lord's Supper, all of this points to the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead so that we could have any hope of eternal life and salvation from our sin. That's what that means. And so Peter here in verses 21 and 22 is reminding the church 
Just as God saved Noah, He is saving you. And remember that your baptism is what immersed you. It's a symbol of what you have been immersed into through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus Christ that you have been baptized into, that you have been immersed into His mercy and grace He has gone into heaven, verse 22. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Are we immersed into this Jesus in verse 22 who is sitting at the right hand of the Father God, who is sitting with angels and authorities and powers, and all of these are under his feet? Are we immersed into his love and into his forgiveness? Are we immersed into that or are we surfacey? See the point? You're not swimming if you're still up sitting on top of your floaty on top of the water. Okay. If you're out in the water in the pool on your little floaty raft, you're not in the water. Gotta get into the deep end, folks. Gotta get immersed. Get your hair wet. Oh my goodness. It's going to take effort to tread water, but that water holds you up. And Jesus Christ, if we're immersed in him, he'll hold us up even though we're overwhelmed with him. And that's a beautiful place to be. Amen? Amen. At this time, I mean, this message of the gospel is so good.